Chapter 6 of The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa S. Ware. The Toxin of Revolt and Other Essays by Brander Matthews. Chapter 6 American Aphorisms. 1. At the beginning of an address which Lord Morley delivered before the Edinburgh Philosophical Institute nearly thirty years ago, he told his hearers that he had often been asked for a list of the hundred best books, and that he had once been requested to supply, by return of post, the names of the three best books in the world. Both the hundred and the three are a task far too high for me he confessed, and then he declared that he would prefer to indicate what is one of the best things worth hunting for in books, the wisdom which has compacted itself into the proverb, the maxim, the aphorism, the pregnant sentence inspired by common sense in an uncommon degree. Lord Morley asserted that the essence of the aphorism is the compression of a mass of thought and observation into a single saying and he added that it ought to be neither enigmatical nor flat, neither a truism on the one hand nor a riddle on the other. The lecturer did not provide a definition of the lofty aphorism which should serve to distinguish it from the humbler proverb, and yet the distinction is perhaps contained in this last quotation, since the democratic proverb tends toward the truism, whereas the more aristocratic aphorism inclines toward the enigma. Lord John Russell once called a proverb, All men's wisdom and one man's wit. And proverbial wisdom appeals at once to the mass of mankind, whereas the less universal truth packed into the subtler aphorism is likely to demand a little time for consideration before it can win its welcome. In fact, the more keenly the maker of an aphorism has peered into the inner recesses of human nature, the less likely is his maxim to attain immediate acceptance from the multitude who are optimistically content to see only the surface of life and who prefer not to probe too deeply into the fundamental egotism of man. So it is that the swift apprehension of some of the shrewdest of La Rochefoucauld's sayings might almost be made to serve as a test both of the intelligence and of the knowledge of the labyrinthian intricacies of the human soul. We may easily find ourselves quarreling over the veracity of an aphorism, whereas a proverb is almost indisputable. It proves itself as simply and as instantly as the assertion that two and two make four. This immediate obviousness of a proverb does not prevent it from being irreconcilable with another proverb stating the equally obvious opposite. Pennywise and pound foolish may seem to contradict take care of the pence, and the pounds will take care of themselves. But after all, the contradiction is only apparent. Since it needs both of these sayings to contain the whole truth, that we must be careful in the little things, no doubt, but we must also be able to discern boldly the moment when little things must be sacrificed for great things. More than one humorist has seen fit to poke fun at this peculiarity of proverbial wisdom, without any impairment of the authority of either of the contradictory assertions. The maxim we may trace to its source and tag with the name of its maker, but the proverb is not individual even if it must have been minted by some one man. P. 
penny wise and pound foolish might have been uttered in any age and it is only the modern expression for a rule of conduct inherited from the remotest past an equivalent phrase must have been uttered soon after the development of articulate speech and we may be assured that it was almost as familiar to the cave dwellers as it is to us it did not have to be transmitted by inheritance from the dead languages to the living it sprang into being by spontaneous generation in every tongue ancient and modern by the very fact that it is of universal validity and therefore of universal utility it is to be found in every land in every language and in every age the maxim on the other hand is more frankly individual it is due not to the wisdom of the many but only to the penetrating wit of one and therefore it is often racial revealing the tongue and the time of him who first put the piercing thought into apt words so it is likely to have local color a flavor of the soil in which it grew some of the aphorisms of confucius may be universal no doubt but others and not a few of them are essentially chinese i cannot help feeling that i discover a roman quality in the saying of marcus aurelius that the best way to get revenge is to avoid being like the one who has injured you this is not only roman it seems to have also an individual liberality disclosing a truly imperial mind many of the maxims of the caustic la rochefoucauld are marked with the time and place of their making the france of the aged mazarin and the youthful louis the fourteenth when the french observer asserted that you are never so easily cheated as when you are trying to cheat somebody else he is declaring a truth which might have been uttered by aristophanes by moliere or by mark twain a truth upon which are established the schemes of the green goods man and the gold brick operator of new york in the twentieth century but when he tells us that virtue would not go far if vanity did not keep it company there we can detect the frenchmen of the seventeenth century it is true that saint pave credits la rochefoucauld with large imagination not a frequent possession of the french finding evidence for this in another of these maxims we cannot gaze fixedly at the sun or at death but most of these searching and scorching sentences are directly due to a disenchantment which envenoms la rochefoucauld's scalpel and this disenchantment was the result of a reaction of that social instinct which is a predominant french characteristic of course among the mass of french aphorisms there are a host which lack local color when madame de boufflet suggested that the only perfect people are those we do not know she was making a remark that might have been uttered by an italian or even by a spaniard when the spanish gratian declared that the ear is the area gate of truth but the front door of lies he was saying something that might have been said by an englishman or by a roman and when bacon asserted that extreme self-lovers will set a house on fire and it were but to roast their eggs the wording is british but the thought is one that might readily have occurred to a frenchman and that might be easily paralleled in the pages of la rochefoucauld there is little that is significantly oriental in this specimen of the wisdom of the east if you censure your friend for every fault he commits there will come a time when you will have no friend to censure a frenchman could very well have said that although he might have phrased it more felicitously on the other hand 
many of the sayings of Nietzsche we could not well credit to an inquisitor of any other nationality or of any other century. There are two things a true man likes, danger and play, and he likes woman because she is the most dangerous of playthings. That is one of them. And there is another. All women, behind their personal vanity, cherish an impersonal contempt for woman. And yet even in Nietzsche, we may find now and again a sentence which might have been set down on the tablets of that lonely stoic Marcus Aurelius. A slave cannot be a friend, and a tyrant cannot have a friend. 2. The perennial commonplaces of observation are reincarnated in every generation, born again, century after century, in every quarter of the globe, since man himself changes only a little, even though mankind has ever the delusion of progress. It was an unknown but a most modern American who was once moved to the biting accusation against certain of his contemporary countrymen that they sought first to get on, then to get honor, and finally to get honest. Nevertheless, this bitter jibe had been anticipated by the old Greek poet Phasilides, who expressed his wish first to acquire a competence, and then to practice virtue. John Fiske once wrote an essay to indicate a few of the many points of resemblance between the Athenians of old and the Americans of today and we need not despair of yet finding a Greek wit who had already dwelt on that disadvantage of swapping horses while crossing a stream, which Lincoln once pointed out with his customary shrewdness. It is perhaps because of their superior social instinct that the French are the modern masters of the maxim. And even if we who speak English are more abundant and more adroit in aphorism than those who speak German or those who speak Italian, we must confess our constant inferiority to those who speak French, a language that lends itself to epigram, because it has been suppled to the needs of a highly cultivated society of the nation most distinguished for its intelligence among the moderns as the Athenians were among the ancients. And of the two peoples who have English for their mother tongue, we Americans, despite our superficial and superabundant loquacity, seem to be able to achieve the sententious at least as often as the British. Lincoln was a master of the compact and pregnant phrase. So was Emerson before him, and so was Franklin a century earlier. In his autobiography, Franklin tells how he utilized the little spaces that occurred between the remarkable days in the almanac, which he issued annually for 25 years and which was the basis of his own comfortable fortune to contain proverbial sentences, chiefly such as inculcated industry and frugality, as the means of procuring wealth, and thereby securing virtue, it being more difficult for a man in want to act always honestly. As to use here one of these proverbs, it is hard for an empty sack to stand upright. Most of these proverbs were borrowed from the wisdom of many ages and nations, as Franklin himself acknowledges, but not a few of them seemed to be due to his own witty wisdom, and that just quoted appears to be one of these. Taken as a whole, the sayings of poor Richard range rather with the lowly proverb than with the more elevated and more incisive aphorism, and Lord Morley chose to dismiss them with curt contempt as kitchen maxims about thrift in time and money. 
Yet the saying about the empty sack rises a little above the level of the kitchen maxim. And so does that other which declares that, if you would have your business done, go. If not, send. One of Franklin's biographers records that when Paul Jones, after his victory in the Ranger, went to Brest to await the new ship which had been promised him, he was tormented for months by excuses and delays despite his appeals to Franklin, to the royal family, and to the king himself. Then at last he chanced to pick up poor Richard, and the saying just quoted hit home. He took the hint, hurried to Versailles, and there got an order for the ship which he renamed in honor of his teacher, the Bonhomme Richard. Emerson gives us golden nuggets of thought, so Mr. Brownell suggests, but he does not mold them into beads and link them into necklaces. His essays lack unity, except that of theme and of tone, and his sentences are, as he himself confessed, infinitely repellent particles. No one of his essays is artistically composed, and almost every one of his sentences is sufficient unto itself, with a careful adroitness of composition of which he alone in his time had the secret. He is master of the winged phrase, barbed to flesh itself in the memory. In his sentence there is not only meat, but meat dressed to perfection, cooked to a turn, and not lacking sauce. No writer ever possessed a more distinguished verbal instinct, or indulged it with more delight. To quote again from Mr. Brownell, Emerson fairly caresses his words and phrases and shows in his treatment of them a pleasure nearer sensuousness, perhaps, than any other he manifests. Nonetheless, it is difficult to detach from his pages the exact maxim as we find it in Bacon and La Rochefoucauld and Vauvenargues. Emerson's thoughts are elevated and often subtle, but only rarely do they fall precisely into the form of the aphorism. He tells us that the man in the street does not know a star in the sky. But that is not quite a maxim, even if it escapes being a truism. He asserts that it is impossible for a man to be cheated by anyone but himself, as for a thing to be and not to be at the same time. But that can hardly be called an aphorism, wise as it is and incisive. Perhaps the explanation lies in the fact that Emerson is wholly devoid of malice. The malice that edges La Rochefoucauld's shafts to sting themselves into our consciousness. Emerson has few delusions about the ultimate infirmities of mankind, but he is never malevolent. He is clear-eyed beyond all question, and yet he remains optimistic. In most maxim-makers, there is a spice of ill-will, a taint of hostile contempt, and Emerson is ever free from ill-will, from contempt, and from hostility. 3. In no department of the American branch of English literature is our benevolent optimism more pervadingly manifested than in our humor. American humor is likely to be good humor. Even our satires are not cruelly savage, and our epigrams rarely have a poisoned dart at the tail of them. Our unquenchable friendliness has prevented most native fun-makers from focusing their gaze on the meaner possibilities of selfish egotism. It is not a little surprising, therefore, that the largest and most liberally endowed of our later humorists, Mark Twain, 
should have taken to the making of maxims as disenchanted as those of Marcus Aurelius, although not more acrid than those of La Rochefoucauld. It was toward the end of his career, when he stood pleasantly conspicuous on the pinnacle of his fame, abundantly belauded and sincerely beloved, that his indurated sadness, his total dissatisfaction with life, found relief in chiseled sentences to be set beside the sayings of Epictetus. Consider this. Whoever has lived long enough to find out what life is knows how deep a debt of gratitude we owe to Adam, the first benefactor of our race. He brought death into the world. Note how the same thought is brought forward again in this. Why is it that we rejoice at a birth and grieve at a funeral? It is because we are not the person involved. And yet another twist is given to this same thought in a third saying. All say how hard it is that we have to die. A strange complaint to come from the mouths of people who have had to live. Those who knew Mark Twain intimately were well aware of the despairing sadness that darkened his last years. He was wont to don the cap and bells to appear before the public, but in private, or at least when he was alone and lonely, he sat in sackcloth and ashes. He had always had the melancholy which is likely to underlie and to sustain robust humor, and his melancholy was even more intense and more astringent than that of Cervantes or Moliere, although either of these might well have anticipated this saying of their belated brother in fun-making. The man who is a pessimist before he is forty-eight knows too much. The man who is an optimist after he is forty-eight knows too little. But it may be doubted whether either the Spaniard or the Frenchman would have penned the assertion that, if you pick up a starving dog and make him prosperous, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between a dog and a man. Here we discover not mere pessimism, but stark misanthropy. There is a sounder philosophy in another of his sayings. Grief can take care of itself, but to get the full value of a joy, you must have someone to share it with. Quite possibly a majority of casual readers, finding these dark sayings scattered through the bright pages of a professional funny man, did not feel called upon to take them seriously, and might even have accepted them as merely humorous overstatements intended to provoke laughter by their evident exaggeration. Those casual readers may have discovered no essential difference between the annihilating blankness of the opinions just quoted and utterances avowedly caustic, such as the assertion that one of the most striking differences between a cat and a lie is that a cat only has nine lives. Yet even in this saying, the playfulness serves only to hide from the hasty the solemn warning it disguises. 4. It is the mark of the superior humorist that he arouses thought as well as laughter, and George Meredith held this to be a test of true comedy of the loftier type. Many a wise man has warned Motley that he might want a smiling welcome for his message. When Josh Billings was amusing us with his acrobatic orthography, a critic in one of the literary reviews of London was sharp enough to see that the misfit spelling was only an eccentric costume put on to compel attention, like the towering plumes of the quack doctor's hat. And this critic, by stripping off this incongruous cloak, 
borrowed by Josh Billings from Artemis Ward, removed him from the company of the mere newspaper jest manufacturers, and promoted him to the upper class of more penetrating maxim makers. Professor Bliss Perry recently remarked that the tone of many of the apothegms of Josh Billings is really grave, and that often the moralizing might be by Labrouille. To the Josh Billings who frankly fellowships with Artemis Ward, we may credit this paragraph. There is two things in this life for which we are never fully prepared, and that is twins, a bold whimsical absurdity which has served its purpose when it provokes the guffaw it aims to excite. But it is to the shrewd observer who is to be accompanied with La Bruyere that we must ascribe the statement here deprived of its undignified disguise of queer orthography, that when a fellow gets going downhill, it does seem as though everything had been greased for the occasion. That is an echo from Greek philosophy. And here is another saying, in which Professor Perry finds the perfect tone of the great French moralist. It is a very delicate job to forgive a man without lowering him in his own estimation, and in yours too. Perhaps it may be well to cite a third equally felicitous in its phrasing and equally acute in its content. Life is short, but it is long enough to ruin any man who wants to be ruined. These are all assertions of universal veracity, even though they lack any specific American tang. Local color is lacking also in the motto Washington Alston had painted on the wall of his studio. Selfishness in art, as in other things, is sensibility kept at home. It is absent also from Thomas Bailey Aldrett's declaration that a man is known by the company his mind keeps. And it is wanting again in John Hay's distich. There are three species of creatures who, when they seem to be coming, are going. When they seem to be going, they come. Diplomats, women, and crabs. By the side of these may be set two of Mr. E. W. Howe's country town sayings. When a man tries himself, the verdict is usually in his favor. And everyone hates a martyr. It's no wonder martyrs were burned at the stake. Yet, even in these remarks from the rural West, there is but little flavor of the soil. Perhaps this American savor can be detected a little more plainly in three of the sayings which Mr. Ken Hubbard credits to his creature, Abe Martin, and which he endows with the unpremeditated ease of the spoken word. One of them is to the effect that nobody works as hard for his money as the fellow that marries it. Another calls attention to the fact that nobody ever listened to reason on an empty stomach. And a third asserts that Folks that blurt out just what they think wouldn't be so bad if they thought. There is a homely directness about these rustic apothegms which makes them far more palatable than the strained and sophisticated epigrams of the characters of Oscar Wilde's plays who are ever striving strenuously to dazzle us with verbal pyrotechnics. The labored contortions of the London jester seem to have a thin crackle when we compare them with these examples of rustic shrewdness sprouting spontaneously on the prairies. And, in the aphorism, as in every other kind of literature, 
The fact is more important than the form. The content is more significant than the container. End of chapter 6. Recording by Lisa S. Ware.